Really? Thanks. I'm, I'm not one to have a lot of deep feelings. But a couple things have been going on around here that have been really creepy. I woke up this morning with this This, this feeling inside. And I got reminded of Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah. And I haven't thought about Isaiah since I was a little kid. The words that came to my mind were the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who are living in the land of darkness for them, a light has dawned. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, I, I just can't shake that. You see, the, the fishing has been just terrible lately. And I got bills to pay, and, and the government has been taxing us like crazy. Honestly, the only light I want to see is a light shining off a big pile of fish. That's what I want to see. So another crazy thing happened. Jesus, that guy who was living by the lake shore in Capernaum, he came by to Andrew and Peter. I fished with these guys my whole life. And they're out there doing their work, and right in their backswing as they're getting ready to cast that net, he comes up to them and says, Come and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. They dropped everything they had, and they followed him. As they were walking away, I, I, I told them that their nets were full of fish, and, and they said I could have it. And then it comes back to me, that thing that Isaiah said. Those who are walking in darkness, that's me. A light has come on this big pile of fish I got. But I still wonder, where did those guys go anyways? This morning, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 9. We're going to go from verse 20 to 25, and we're going to go from 51 to 62. I'm glad you're here today because we're starting a new series. And the series is called Next Steps. It's the journey of a disciple. And today, the description from the Gospel of Luke about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is what we're going to take a look at today. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, the first eight chapters is, 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 is very familiar because in the first eight chapters, we read about who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is, is talking to his disciples about. Who am I? But a shift takes place when you get to chapter 9. 
where Peter, with help from the Holy Spirit, he makes a statement about who Jesus is. He says, you are God's Messiah. And he's saying, you are the one that's going to bring the ruling power of God upon the broken and upon those who need to be healed. So let's take a look at our text today, and I'll, I'll read it to you. In verse 20, But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service, fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is God's word for us today. From the time that Jesus' identity is revealed, he begins to say, Follow me. Now, what does it mean to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? That's our question for us today. What does it mean? To be a disciple. And we find that Jesus in the beginning is beginning his lessons on what it means, what all of this really means to be a disciple. And so from our text today, the first answer to what does it mean to be a disciple is number one, having a new priority. In verses 57 through 62, we read about these three eager people that want to follow Jesus. In verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, Jesus is saying here, there's nothing wrong with your desire to follow. But do you know what kind of Savior I am? I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of Savior that saves through dying. I'm not the kind that goes to war and conquers kingdoms. I, Jesus says, I, I, I give my life and my heart, and I know those things are going to be broken. 
And he says to the man, I I see that you have this beautiful place that you live in. I, I see that you have this comfortable standard of living. Are you willing to put me before your lifestyle? Are you willing to lose your lifestyle for, for me? And then in verse 59, he says to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to another he said, I'll, I'll, another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to the family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service, for service in the kingdom of God. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a memorial service for your father or visiting your family. But behind these requests, Jesus sees an attitude of the heart. Jesus would say, for you to go to your father's funeral or to go back home, would be a bad idea because I've got to come first in your life. It's about priority. And notice their language here in this text. In both cases, they say, Lord, first, let me do this. First, let me do this. And Jesus is saying that I've got to be your first priority. And this is what it means when he says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. And The person who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the service in the kingdom of God. You can't plow and look this way or else you're going to plow crooked. You can't do that. Now, I think it's, it's important to look at this one phrase because it's, it's not the best translation here. In verse 62, the phrase is, is fit for the service, for service in the kingdom of God. Now take your pen and circle the word fit or or underline it right there. It's not the best translation. In that reading, you might think that he's saying, unless you're totally committed, you don't qualify for the kingdom. But of course, no one qualifies for the kingdom of God. We're in the kingdom through God's grace. It's not a a list of qualifications that we meet to get in the kingdom. The word fit here. Write the word useful right next to it. If Jesus is your highest priority, then you will be most useful in serving God in his kingdom. Another cryptic statement that Jesus makes here is, let the dead bury their own dead, right? I mean, really, what does that really mean, right? Of course, physically dead people can't dig graves, right? So what, what is Jesus saying? The first noun here must refer to the spiritually dead. Spiritual deadness is being blind to a reality, a spiritual reality. So spiritual deadness is being blind to spiritual things as physical deadness is unrelatable to a physical reality. I I, I hear this often in our region in the South Bay, and it's probably a Southern California. It's probably a metropolitan thing all across the globe. But you hear people who are Christians, they say they're Christians, and they'll say, you know, I believe in Jesus, I love God, but I can't put him first right now. I, I've got my family, I've got my career, I've got a house that I own that needs a lot of fixing, I've got my investments, I've got my retirement, I just can't put him first right now. But when things settle down, right? 
when things settle down, then I'll put him first. Or, or some people might say, I understand Christianity. I'm just not ready to put Christ in the center of my life. Oh, I, I think you really don't understand Christianity then, if you're not ready. See, Jesus is saying, putting anything before me reveals spiritual deadness, is what he's saying here. These are pretty harsh statements about priority. He's saying, let the dead bury their own dead. He's saying, no one who looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can illustrate it another way, because there's a lot of sort of nominalism when it comes to Christianity. If someone said, well, uh, Shannon Pittman, would you, would you stand up just for a second? This is Shannon Pittman, everybody. and Some of you know her. You can, you can sit down now. Thanks. Shannon is, a, is, a, is a, um, a child of God. She's a wife. She's a mom. Um, she, she serves God. She's one of our uh, Nova Kids uh, primary leaders. And if I went up to Shannon and I said, Shannon, let's go out on the plaza. I, I want to talk to you about, about something it, it's, it's really exciting. I want to talk to you about something on the plaza. And if I said, Shannon, let's go out there and talk, but Pittman, you stay here. It wouldn't make any sense, would it? I'd say, Shannon, let's go talk, but Pittman, you, you got to stay inside. You see, if you want to talk with Shannon, you've got to talk with Pittman too, right? To say, Jesus, come into my life, Jesus, forgive my sins. Jesus, answer my prayers. Jesus, do this or do that for me. But whatever you do, don't be the manager of my life. It's sort of like, Savior, stay in, but Lord, stay out, right? It's, you see, Jesus is all Savior, and Jesus is all Lord. And so to be a disciple, number one, is to have him as first priority, The second thing we see in our text here, to be a disciple, is number two, taking on a new identity. It's taking on a new identity. Being a disciple is not adding something new to your life, it's taking on something like a new identity. A disciple not only sets a new priority, but a disciple takes on a new identity. Take a look at verse 23 in chapter 9. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Now the word life here in verse 24, underline that word in verse 24, it's not the word for physical life. The Greek word that's translated here for life is the word psyche, meaning self. He's talking pretty radically here about the psychological inner self when he uses the word life. Jesus is saying, your old way, your old way of having an identity or gaining a sense of self has got to end. In in a sense, you have to die to that old way of whatever your identity was before. And and I can give you a whole new self-identity. You'll you'll get a whole new true self. He says, lose yourself and you're going to find yourself. Which means, I want you to die to your old approach of having this identity. 
and you get a new sense of self-identity. In our world today, there seems to be this obsession, and, and you can see it all the time through media and through TV and movies and books and, and all of this. There seems to be this obsession with finding and fulfilling your deepest desires as the main thing you're supposed to do in this life. It almost seems that what Jesus has in mind when he says this is, you're never going to find out who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. Did you get that? You're never going to find out who you really are by trying to find out who you really are. You're going to have to lose yourself in serving me. And, and some things only happen as a byproduct. You, know, you can't just go for that thing. Some things happen as a result of a byproduct, and identity is one of them. Gaining things from the world is the conventional way we try to find ourself. In fact, the three men at the end of Luke chapter 9 are examples of this. Because some people will say, you're, you're nobody unless you have this sort of wonderful lifestyle. And so we're all trying to have a better lifestyle, a better house, a better place to live, a nicer area, a safer area, a more comfortable living, it, closer to the mountains or closer to the beach or closer, whatever, whatever you want. And people in a more traditional culture, they'll say, you're nobody unless you have family, unless you have a real close family. But Jesus is saying, if you get the whole world, you can have the whole world but it can't give you a stable self-identity. He says, if you lose yourself for me, if, if you do that, if you lose yourself for me, in other words, instead of trying to gain self by gaining things or building, you, what you need to do is you need to build everything in your life upon me, on who I am and what I've done. And finally, you'll have a true self-identity that's stable because you you're built to know me. What does it mean to be a disciple? Number one, it's having a, a new priority. Number two, it's taking a new identity. And the, the third is it, you're living out a new mercy. You're, you're living out a new mercy. When you're learning to be a disciple, you have a new priority, you have a new identity, and you begin to live out this new mercy. This is very interesting right here, and it, we're going to take some changes in some scripture and take a look at it. So follow me here. Luke chapter 9. And then he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. Let's try to understand what, what's going on here. There's a prophet named Elijah, Old Testament, who called fire down upon some soldiers who were trying to arrest him. Now, in Luke chapter 9, in verses 28 through 35, the message of that scene was that Jesus was even greater than this guy Elijah in the Old Testament, and Moses too. So you think of the logic of the disciples. Just think, try to think as, as one of these disciples at this time. They're thinking, okay, we got it, Jesus. You're greater than Elijah. And these people, these Samaritans, have rejected you. And so that's even worse than rejecting Elijah, because you're greater than Elijah. So shouldn't we just bring down fire and destroy these 
rotten Samaritans? Shouldn't we just do that? This is the kind of prophet that the world could relate to, a conquering one, right? But Jesus doesn't rebuke the Samaritans for rejecting them from going into their city. He rebukes the disciples, yeah. He, Jesus is the absolute un-Elijah, right? Can you imagine the disciples' confusion here? They're, they're thinking, wait, Jesus is greater than Elijah, and Elijah did this. We should, that's why we said that, Jesus. Why are you getting on our case right now, right? We read later that the soldiers come to take Jesus away to kill him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in that ruckus, an ear gets cut off, right? And so what does Jesus do? He, he heals the ear. Later on, the soldiers are pounding nails into his hands and into his feet. And what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So why doesn't fire come down on the Samaritans like the soldiers? The answer to that is found in Luke chapter 12. When Jesus says in verse 49, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Now this is very interesting for two reasons. The first is this. In the, in the Bible, fire is an imagery that's always used for the judgment of God. The second thing is this. Jesus says, I've come to bring fire on the earth. And this is perplexing because after all, he just rejected this Elijah's fiery approach, right? So he's already been baptized in water. We know that with Jesus. So he's clearly not talking about that. He's talking about something else. This is what it is. The fire came down on Jesus. He was the one immersed in the judgment of God. He got what we deserved. This is the answer to this mystery or these riddles here. I, I know that, and, and you probably do too, you, you read in the Old Testament and you, and you see these people and, and they um, want to atone for their sins. And so they get this animal and they put it on the altar and then they burn it up, right, to atone for their sins. And, and something inside me, and, and maybe you too, I, I think something inside of us intuitively says to that, the burning of an animal on an altar really can't take away your sins, right? I mean, do you, do you feel that? It's like, I know you do that, but really? All those fires of burnt animals on the altar are pointing to this fire here in Luke chapter 12. It didn't come down on the Samaritans. It didn't come down on the soldiers because it came down on Jesus. He came to take that fire and to bear that fire for us. Luke chapter 9 verse 22 says, A son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and on the third day be raised to life. They rejected him. Shouldn't they be rejected? He, he was rejected for them. The Son of Man came to be, re, be rejected and to be killed. And this is the secret, really, to the change of identity for each and every one of us. You cannot change your identity without a radical and a personal experience of, of, of the 
of Jesus' love and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy on your life. I've heard people say, you're right, I, I, I should change my identity and build my identity on God. But you know what? You can't change your identity by a decision until you're melted by this amazing sight and this amazing knowledge and this sense of Jesus taking the fire for you. You can't have your identity transformed. And you just can't decide, I'm going to change my identity. It can't be done. You need the personal experience of a relationship with God that your identity changes over time. Jesus would just say, you don't, don't have any other master but me because I'm the only one who will never leave you nor forsake you. If you fail me, I'll forgive you. So what is it to be a disciple? You have to have all three. There must be living out a new identity. There must be um, uh, this radical mercy that invades your life, which brings you into setting a new priority, which is Jesus Christ. Now, I, I wanted to just close with this application, these next steps in discipleship. Notice these three practical things about being a disciple. Just, just real quick. The first is this. Discipleship is not an option. It, it, discipleship is not an option. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must follow me. See, there are not two kinds of Christians. There are not regular Christians and people who are really disciples. There's, there's not two kinds. There's just one. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And Jesus would say, to have anything to do with me is to follow me. And the way I define setting a new priority and taking on a new identity and experiencing and living out a new mercy. Discipleship is not an option for the Christian. The second thing is this. A disciple is gentle. Man, this is important for many of us. A disciple is gentle. What really amazes me about the heart of this passage is that the disciples say, we're, we're going to show you, Jesus, how intensely committed we are to you. They're, they're so sort of intense about this. The disciples would say to Jesus, Jesus, look at these people rejecting you. Don't you want us to bring fire down on them? And what does Jesus say? He, he would say, guys, you don't get it. And here's why. See, I, I don't know about you, but I, I've, I've seen it before with Christians and, and people in, in other religions and people who follow other philosophies. My experience in with these committed disciples of other religions and other philosophies is that they're really hard on themselves and they're really hard on others. And they're so committed to the cause and they go up to people and they say, why aren't you committed to the cause too? And they're really hard on others as well as themselves. They'll come up to, even in political factions, they'll say, um, you should all be committed to the cause. Why, what's the matter with you anyways? But the gospel's utterly different. The harder you are in yourself, the harder you are in the gospel, the easier you are with other people. But the gospel's different. 
Jesus Christ is saying, well, he's saying it like this. My disciples are not terrorists. They're not. My disciples are not terrorists. Now, when we think terrorists, we think of, you know, suicide bomber terrorists. But I'll tell you what. Sometimes I look around and I see disciples and people run from them because they're afraid. A disciple is gentle. And my disciples know, Jesus would say, they're saved by grace. So when they look at people who aren't doing it right, they don't say, why aren't you as good as I am? Why aren't you as committed as I am? That's not a disciple, because a disciple is gentle. See, the disciples that Jesus is dealing with, they're racist. They're they're self-righteous. Self-righteousness and bigotry and harshness, they go away the closer you become you, you. you draw towards Jesus. They, they go away as your awareness of Jesus taking the fire for you becomes more central to your heart. And that's a sign that you're not trying to save yourself. You're not trying to be good enough. You're not just trying to be religious through your commitment or the, the display of your commitment. Last thing, application for today is discipleship is a journey. It's a step-by-step journey. I think I, I, I think it's so important. It's it's narratively brilliant of Luke that in chapter nine and verse fifty one, Jesus sets out on this journey towards Jerusalem. It's Jesus's journey of discipleship is really what's going on. He sets his face towards Jerusalem, and it's from this moment he begins this journey toward the cross that begins teaching about disciples. And discipleship. And over the next nine chapters, all the teaching on discipleship comes as he's going on this journey. And it's Luke's way of saying, this is Luke saying to us, discipleship is a journey. On one hand, there is decisiveness because you have to take a step. There's a decision to take a step. However, your decisive beginning, after your decisive beginning, the fact remains that discipleship is a journey. It's a process that takes time, and you're not going to have it all together in the beginning because every disciple, every disciple should ask themselves, what's my next step? So join us over the next 10 weeks as we take a journey of being disciples. Let's all stand as we close our time in a word of prayer.